Hi, I'm Mike Nagrant, and you're listening to Hungry Magazine from Chicago, Illinois. Four, three, two, one more time. I've got Tim Graham and Chad Allegood here from True Restaurant. Uh, Chad's a sommelier and wine director at True. Tim's the uh, executive chef or chef de cuisine. Chef de cuisine. Chef de cuisine. Uh, they're kind of rolling out a new idea here. Instead of the typical conceit where a chef puts out a menu and the sommelier pairs the wines, uh, Chad has actually put out a list of wines, and Tim's cooking to the wine list. Or they're working together, you know, and, and that's that's kind of a different thing in what's going on in the industry. I wondered how you guys came up with this idea. Well, um, it started with, from a few different things. Uh, first of all, starting with wanting to control Far's me with the pairing that and. And then also, in respect to, uh, we had a, a string of semi-private dining room and uh, private dining room parties that have picked their wine and went at Tim and uh, to create the menu around that. So we just kind of got, kind of got a vocabulary about it and worked on it ourselves and came up with the idea to. Uh, and in a sense, the guest doesn't know anything what the food is; they know what the wine is, and that's all. So that's where I kind of where it stemmed from. Have you guys ever? I wondered. Um, I mean, you mentioned the private dining room where you just came across the wine that you absolutely had to have out there in the dining room and you mm-hmm. went to Tim and said, hey, we got to do this even before you guys did the menu. Well, you know what has happened a lot in the past is, for whatever reason, True will do a lot of fish dishes and uh, not so many red wine-friendly courses. And they'll often be asking for one more red wine course, one more red wine course. And so, like you said, we've changed, we flipped it around and said, Chad, bring your ideal wine flight and uh, we'll go put food to it there mm-hmm. rather than you know, the old, we need one more red wine course, please. You know, can't you do a squab before the, the main course? You know, that kind of thing. So so I wondered, you know, so as a sommelier, all of a sudden you have this whole universal wines you can pick from. Absolutely. Um, you know, how do you do that? What do you do? I mean, looking at the menu, I noticed there's definitely some things that where it seems like you're going from lighter to heavier, mm-hmm. as you would in, in a tasting menu maybe. And, you know, even with the champagne course kind of in the middle, kind of reminds me of, you know, like the idea of like a palate cleanse or the sorbet, yeah. um, you know, before you get into that Baron Auschwitz, which is Absolutely. like super heavy um, and sweet. Um, but how do you how do you go about picking something? Well, like that? I mean, obviously you look at what you can have enough of. You know, you want to have um, uh, legs for these wines because you want obviously if he's developing a dish on it, you want to do that. But really, we stemmed from um, uh, I wanted although it is I think an interesting progression from lightest to uh, to heavier in style. Um, I wanted each wine to be something interesting. It begins with a wine from Virginia, which most people don't know exists, and then an extremely classic style. Uh, Alsatian wine, a Pinot Blanc, and then then we kind of shift gears. We go to a Beaujolais that's not like any other Beaujolais people have had, a really rich style, and then moving into what I believe is kind of one of two very elegant, classic, amazing vintage style wines, that 2002 Merceau, and then uh, an older Riesling, which most people rarely have ever had or are unaware that it is a noble, great variety and can age that beautifully. And then we go to what I think is an up-and-coming wine region, uh, Central Otago, Pinot Noir, the New Zealand, southernmost wine producing region in the world, something that I think is going to be in 10 years, probably one of the best wine making areas in the world. And then uh, then the red wine, classic elegant style, 2001 Brunello de Montalcino. And then a cult wine, Maris Cabernet Sauvignon. And then the champagne, although I do agree it is a palate cleanser, that is a, it's a Grand Cru champagne that we actually serve in two different styles. Mm-hmm. The course before we we flatten it out and leave it there for a full course so that it raises the temperature and changes the flavor of it, certainly. And then we pour the same champagne cold next to it. And we have two different presentations of Briat Severin, one geared more towards the warmer one and one geared towards the colder one. And then finish one, what is, I, I believe, a wine treasure. Um, Alois Crocker's 1999 Trocambien Alsace or Um He just passed away. I mean, he's, a, uh, I think, was integral in sweet wine making throughout the world and certainly put Austria on the map for sweet wine. And, uh, so I think really ending with something that is, I think, unbelievably special. Yeah. The champagne course is an interesting thing because now you have this idea of the bubbles and then sort of more of a still version, which means that the, the wine has to be really good because mm-hmm. you're not no longer relying on the bubbles to kind Absolutely. of up the ante. I wonder if you could talk about that champagne in particular that you guys are using. Uh, well, it's, it's Paul Barra, extremely small Ricolta Manipulant or a grower producer. Uh, it's a vintage, 1999. Um, it's from the uh, village of uh, Bouzy in Montan de Rance. 90% Pinot Noir uh, from a nice mid-slope vineyard. Um, so it, and also, it, 
entourage or spending four solid years with its sediment before it's disgorged. So all that gives it a beautiful richness and complexity to it. And when you find, I found, and it's really been affected by everybody else, and obviously it's true, so we've got a beautiful service of it, we have a beautiful decanter, it sits there, it's very elegantly done, uh, but when it's in the glass for everybody, they're just amazed that it's the exact same thing. And this warmness has this marzipan-y, um, almond-rich, almost sweet mouth-coating quality to it, and then you taste the other one, uh, which has similar qualities to it. Obviously it is the same wine, but there you're getting uh, preserved lemon and apple and pear and, oh. um, and, and a striking acidity that's really lost in the, in the warmer version. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I'm not looking to blow people's minds, but I, I, I like it when it, it happens to be a side effect. And As a chef, I wonder what flipping the tables like this does. It, what, does it present problems that you wouldn't have otherwise? Um, does it force you to be uh, cook differently or be more creative? I'm curious what your perspective is on it. I think that it's actually helpful. Anytime you enter like brainstorming with boundaries and sets of rules, it's easier to. It, you're not pulling from this universe of flavors. You know, it's. Uh, you know, you're given. Me and Chad talked. You know, about each wine as we went down, and I've actually tasted each one before we. Uh, you know, he would help me pull out those tertiary flavors and those things that you know, the wine aficionados are, key words that they're going to be l linking with that wine and. Uh, just uh, it actually wasn't very hard at all. It came the menu came together pretty fast because it started with a lot of those key words, and uh, you know that was uh, the tobacco smoked cod. You know a lot of things have been thinking about doing for a little while, and uh, this menu gave the chance to uh, try several of those. Tell me about that tobacco smoked cod. You know I've always thought that the smell of pipe tobacco is just one of the most you know sort of comfort smells that, that there is and I didn't yeah. even have a family member that smoked pipe tobacco. You know? My dad used to smoke like a Churchill blend that I used to love and I, I if I smell it still I don't know if they still make it but if I, I would know in a minute. So I, I hear what you're saying. You know as we look to been thinking a lot about smoking lately and you know adding flavors in that regard and uh, applewood chips just become that any kind of wood after a while um, and uh, that was one of the you know modes that I had thought of to uh, influence more flavor in smoke, you know, if you're not going to soak the wood in, you know, root beer or something, um, then let's add pipe tobacco half and half to the wood and see what happens. Um, and, uh, you know, it came, comes out pretty good. Are there a couple really inspired pairings in terms of the food and wine marriage here that you guys are really proud of? Um, I, I would... Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I think we're proud of all of them. Obviously, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I think that some are some are just banging. Uh, there's this hot and cold king oyster dish with the 1993 uh, um, Ausleza Riesling. So it's this hot and high Neusbrunnen. And Neusbrunnen is a special vineyard in the Rheingau that's not overly steep and has very alluvial, well-draining soil and uh, it's really basked with sunlight. Mm -hmm. um, so that really uh, gives it this beautiful richness to it. And the age, and it's this dish that's so much on it. as mushroom, avocado, caviar, grapefruit, candied grapefruit, hot and cold, all, all happening all there. And it's amazing how pieces of the wine, just the age with the mushroom, the sweetness opposite of the caviar, the main flavor of grapefruit opposite of the grapefruit is, uh, is fantastic. The, mm -hmm. the acidity opposite of the avocado, and that's really a banging one. I think it's really cool. That's the only one that we brought back that when we designed the menu, Chad asked for, we ran that dish about a year ago, mm -hmm. um, and that's the, Chad asked just for that dish. He's like, can we do that dish again? So uh, we brought that one back. Mm -hmm. For me, I think the uh, the bison and Absolutely. the maris is uh, is pretty. It's awesome for me. You know, there's no sauce on the bison. The dish is sauceless because the wine is so full-bodied that the wine actually serves as the sauce. Um, you take a bite of the bison, which is a little, it's a drier meat. You know, and uh, there's blackberry and smoked paprika on the plate in various forms. Um, so there is some sort of liquid to help get it down but the the wine is truly the sauce on that on that Absolutely. dish that's the cult cabernet sauvignon from napa valley it's mm -hmm. mark harold and erica Gottel make this wine in their garage three blocks from downtown napa valley this isn't this isn't your typical vision of napa valley this is their backyard yeah so they are they contracting out like the grapes or are they uh, actually yeah, they do that from friends they re they really hold it really close but it's it's some big hitters that they're yeah. getting it from. They're getting some screaming eco fruit and things like that probably, and it's amazing stuff. And and Mark Harold is actually making wine for a lot of um, uh, new cult wines as well. But it, it's a there's this he also has this uh, smoked uh, pardon me this caramelized parsnip 
that matches up with this youthful baby fat sweetness of it and that in the youth I mean it's 2004 uh, most people say it needs two more years and it probably does but the the oak is so not really unintegrated but it, it's so right there that the smoked paprika it just gleams right on top with it it's a cool dish and it's it's pretty hot and uh, it's one I think it really caps off the savory portion of the meal quite nicely so you guys are kind of, you know, this is the other extreme of wine pairing, the other being, you know, a chef gives you a menu. Mm -hmm. um, obviously the right thing to do or the best thing to do is sort of the cooperative effort where the two of you guys meet in the middle. And, you know, I'm sure you guys do a lot of working together and you have before this, otherwise you probably never would have experienced this kind of idea. But why do you guys think uh, more restaurants don't work so cooperatively? I see, I, in, my, in my experience, you see a lot of sort of, you know, the chef is throwing the menu out there or in some cases, you know, they're not even, they might spring a dish at the last minute, which makes it kind of hard for the sommelier. I don't know. I think for that, I mean, I think there's a number of sort of models of being a chef out there and or being a restaurant, and I think chef-driven restaurants, you know, end up, I would rather be a team-driven restaurant than a, than a chef-driven restaurant. You know, there's uh, not a lot of, I think, chefs out there would allow the sommelier to put his, you know, name mm -hmm. on the sommelier collection um, and I, I, I really kind of this is the direction I want to move in wherever I go um, mm -hmm. much more of a team and much more of three people lifting it up rather than one person lifting it up and causing others to suffer um, you know those those sort of chef tricks are are kind of old school these days you know I think that it's uh, that <coughs> dogmatic you know uh, it's my restaurant definitely not in the spirit of, of me so I think you, you bring up a point, this idea of chef-driven restaurants. I was reading an article um, a couple days ago about, uh, I hadn't seen it before, uh, Fernando Batata at Absolutely. Nomi, and there was a quote from Alpina Singh, and she talked about this idea that, like, there are Somali rock stars out there, but there isn't, like, somebody who's really taken that next step where they get the TV shows, and they, you know, sort of like the sommeliers kind of still laying kind of low. I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about what you, why you think that is, or, you know, I mean, especially since you're so well-dressed today. You, <laughs> you, you've got this, the nice paisley um, tie on, I like it. Um, Somalias, I find, are usually, like, super well-dressed. Well, we try to be, and uh, something's got something's to match a flowery language. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I it, I think it's just it's a difficult thing with every everybody cooks, um, and I, I I think to have a TV show or that idea of something it's 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 pretty much a focused thing. Um, there's been many of uh, Jancis Robinson and uh, DC Flint and some really uh, fantastic master sommeliers and masters of wine that have had three or four part or six part PBS specials and that's really I think what, what it can be geared to um, but having something where it's driven like them where they're like you know Bobby Flay or something like that or, or you know where they're really getting into it you got I mean even Andrea Embers started cooking now and um, and that's really where you know she brings the wine obviously in there but that's that's what's going to give you life on something like that um, yeah, people just still don't necessarily have yeah. the base as well as they might for cooking in some way, is what you're saying. I feel what, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what I think is the draw of it to the to the masses. I, I feel like the, the sommeliers, that, the, there's a kind of a stark difference between some of the sommeliers that I'm, uh, I really look up to. Some of them are extremely old school, where they, they've met these people and they've been doing it for a long time and they... They have spent time in these vineyards, and that that's their that's their shtick in a sense. Is they got the amazing stories about getting drunk and driving <laughs> around with these people and hanging out with these people. And the one time I was there for this, and I was here for this wine being made, and th that is what really is a draw for those guests sitting at the table. The other one is the, the yeah, telling a good story, right? Absolutely, if you could tell a great story at the table. That's yeah, the and then the other one I think is kind of what you know. Um, I try to tap into a little bit is the youth of it. It's this exuberant feeling of the taste in the glass. I might not have been here, I might not have met this person yet or been to this vineyard, but I get a taste from this that I think is rock starish and I think that is so great tasting. And I'm going to describe it to you. This is something that I feel passionate about that I'm going to pour in your glass because of Tim's food or something like that. And I think that's, that's kind of the other. Uh, upstart of it in a sense until I meet all these people and I have old stories too. There's probably quite a few bottles that are, that are older than both of you guys in the true cellar. Absolutely. You know, this is one I think the Samia collection is sort of a product of us both being young and, uh, you know, the the team is, is really kind of turning over. You know, it's uh, we're definitely sort of making it our own and, uh, you know, both of us 
Yeah, We've known each other for guys, yeah. 31, mm, 29. 29, yeah. Known each other before we were professional colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. for about six years. And so, you know, oh, yeah. he's uh Where'd you guys, how do you guys know each other? Just through the restaurant. The Chicago restaurant yeah. scene, you know. Um, and uh, the guy that was working there brought me over. I was working at Spiaggia at the time. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting about you guys, one, I, I, Tim, I've been impressed with the food I've seen coming out of your kitchen. I mean, I, I remember I had the uh, the white gazpacho you did at the Savier event uh, with yeah. the carbonated grape, which I was just, like, blown away by. I thought that was probably the best thing in the room, except for maybe the pizza behind you, but <laughs> <laughs> which, awesome. I, which I love because you had this guy, Bert, who's this old-school pizza guy, and then True, which is, you know, True. And yeah. It was just a great contrast, and then, you know, you. I mean, obviously, you're you're uh, up and coming, small, yeah, young, and people are hearing a lot of really good things about you. I wonder maybe if you could tell me a little bit about yourselves, and you know, just kind of introduce you guys to the public in a sense. You know, like where have you been? I know you spent at least four or five years at True now, right? Yep, I got a bachelor's in food science. Um, was gonna graduate with biochemistry, and uh, had been kind of baking behind closed doors forever, and uh, got a job at a restaurant, and immediately knew that the laboratory life was not going to be the one that was uh, I was destined for so switched to food science to keep most of the credits and then uh, where went, at? Uh, University of Missouri mm-hmm. then um, went to culinary school in uh, Vermont at New England Culinary Institute and uh, had my first internship at True about eight years ago probably uh, we do two six months internships there and so my first one came out to True did my six months went back to school um, and then I ended up cooking in Milwaukee um, for about a year and a half. Um, did my second internship there and uh, just never kind of got true out of my system. Um, mm-hmm. Had never found a place that swept the floors as often or, you know, all those little things. Mm-hmm. And um, came back and uh, have just steadily sort of kept my head down. Yeah, people tend to move around a lot in this industry, so it's it's interesting to hear about somebody who stuck it out and worked in a kitchen for a while, and I mean, certainly it's paying off, you know, but why that decision? I mean, I'm sure you went out and stodged a little bit while you were working there, but... Absolutely, you know, it was, has to do with very, and I don't know why that decision, it seemed like I kept getting new teachers at True, different chef de cuisines would come in, there was quite a little influx of different influences moving through the restaurant, um, so it never got old. Um, the opportunity for advancement was, was always there. Every time I started to look somewhere else, um, you know, Chef Tremano would offer me something new. And, you know, I was already, you know, going to college and switching majors and all that, I was already pretty deep into to life and into, uh, you know, student loan debt. I'll <laughs> um, you know, keep you anywhere. <laughs> yeah, didn't have the uh, sort of the privilege of being the, the kind of cook that bounced from one chef to another for the first four years of his career. Um, so, but... I always thought that, that would be a negative, but it appears, you know, that actually this route has, uh, you know, caused as much chances, yeah. maybe more, than I, I would have if I had just uh, done this tours of duty for uh, for the big names. And Chad, of course, you worked under Scott Tyree, yes, for the legendary name in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me a little bit how you got into wine and, and the whole thing. Well, um, I'm uh, from the Midwest. My parents moved out to Colorado. I went to col- uh, college at St. Ambrose University, a small school. And, uh, Where's that? It's in Davenport, Iowa, okay. where I met my wife. And um, uh, I was an acting major. As, as most of us are, I think. Um, but you really, you know, um, well, when I came to Chicago, uh, I auditioned a little bit, but um, quickly found that I couldn't afford anything and saving it for an engagement ring and that, all those sorts of <laughs> things. I uh, couldn't, uh, and then I, I fell into a restaurant and um, quickly, and I had, my, my family wasn't big wine drinkers. I mean, I had a little bit. I knew you drank the Merlot before the Cabernet, those kind of things. But uh, I started working at a restaurant in the suburbs um, where my wife had uh, found me an apartment, um, my then just girlfriend. And uh, I gravitated towards the wine, quickly learned that the more you knew about wine, the better wine you sold, the higher your check was, the higher the tip was, and that's how it really started. And um, then I moved to the to the city, I got a job at a now uh, closed restaurant called Printer's Row, and a legendary restaurant, and there was um, these lunch and dinner parties that they would do, these group of gentlemen called the Cellar Club. So it was Michael Foley right Absolutely, yeah. Michael Foley. And uh, he was a well known by these group of gentlemen they lived all over the nation and they would kind of collectively keep their cellar together and they would do these lunch parties and dinner parties michael wouldn't charge them corkage they were old bottles they were time consuming and they didn't really tip any extra so nobody else wanted to do it and i was the low man so i pulled the short string and and got it and um but i fell in love with it i fell in love with the 
the putting down of the glasses to the opening of the bottles and the you kind probably of the, get to taste some good bottles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was the tip. Exactly. Right? That was the tip, and uh, I made close friends with them. They uh, when I got married, they gave me a bottle for my birth year, and and I knew right then I wanted to put myself in positions to be around these kind of bottles. And I mean, mm -hmm. the first time I did it, it was all 1966s, and uh, it was it was. It what was, do you remember? What some of the yeah, Cheval Blanc, uh, '66, um, uh, Chateau Margaux '66, nice. 1967 uh, Chateau Yquem, uh, fantastic, legendary wines. That so I some got real Blanc, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, and then, but unfortunately, I mean, when printers were closed. Um, and there's not very many sommelier positions out there. I think there's, and then even less assistant jobs. Um, so I went to, I got a job at Spiaggia, and although Henry Bishop, who was there at the time, had no assistant, I, I, you know, I annoyed him as much as possible <laughs> to get his. And I, I, what I learned there was some awesome things about turning people on to new things, because he, he was known for, and is still known for. Wines from Virginia, that's where I learned about that. Wines from um, Arizona, from Michigan, from Texas, from Slovenia, from Croatia, uh, from all these places that have they've been making wine for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And he would find this stuff and, and typically at a fraction of the price. And if you can, if somebody's asking for Pinot Grigio and you pour them something that's a third of the Santa Margarita they asked for, sure. that's from Arizona, um, you're gonna, they're going to come back a few more times. Sure. And, um, and then the job opened up at, uh, it was just a, a front waiter captain position at True. Uh, went there, six months, the current assistant had left, and I spent a, two years under Scott Tyree, and um, um, he showed me how to manage a legendary wine, what's soon to be a legendary wine list. I mean, when this auction market, it's going to be very difficult to create what we have, um, just the Burgundies alone. Yeah, I hear the prices are just written. They are. I get I get calls a few times a week of people wanting to purchase stuff at my list price yeah. uh, from me as much as they can. And, uh, um, it's it's certainly something They're that like come on and drink you can come on <laughs> in and drink. And, uh, uh, but they obviously want to keep it themselves. Um, but uh, true is what what true offers me is is uh, is is this beautiful structure to it um, that that I always really thought, found fascinating is is that there is certainly a method to everything that they do and uh, that's something that even from the back in the days when I acted I think that that I gravitated towards was this attention to detail of things and um, um, and certainly I get to do it with uh, with the wine program there. Uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of the team aspect of things. Obviously, you work with Rick Tremonto, and, you know, but he's got a lot of things going on, and that's not to say that he's spread thin. I don't believe that at all. I know he's got his eye on the ball, but I wonder how, you know, how much input you have now. I mean, how much are you, you know, you playing with the menus, doing some of your own things, you know? Um, what's your role in that, Seth? Um, You know, the menu is except for some things that we've left on the menu from the previous uh, consultant that helped us uh, build the menu last time. It's, it's all mine. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, Chef Shimano is very much more of a sounding board um, and more of a sort of veteran advice giver. Mm -hmm. um, like you say, he has so many things going on that the, uh, he pretty much leaves the menu development 100% you know, up to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, I, I felt real proud about the menu that you know, the, this is the first full tasting menu switch that uh, I have accomplished. Most of the time, when, when when I've been changing menus, we'll keep three courses and change four, and then we'll go a few more months and we'll get rid of those three as seasonality dictates. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, the menu is definitely. What would people be surprised to see coming out of the kitchen these days, or maybe your stamp in that sense? I mean, we talked. I just talked a little bit about this white gazpacho with carbonated grapes in it, which is really interesting. You know, um, that might be even a little more edgier than Rick, who is always edgy. But you know, I think I'm I'm proud of everything I th that leaves that kitchen. Um, I would say if you had to look for where I want my voice to develop and how I want it to develop is. Um, Having the food science degree and being where cuisine is now, having so much access to all of these sort of directed chemicals, you know, these things that are designed to do very specific things, I would, I embrace those. And uh, number one, I embrace them most for their ability to remove fat um, and still provide those mouthfeels. But um, I think that I would like, and I think guests are surprised by maybe two of the dishes I would like technique to be featured twice, maybe, in the whole menu. Mm -hmm. And then to use the rest of these things and not have the guest ever know that there's both carrageenans in it. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that corn custard has no egg and has the texture of custard, but the flavors aren't 
diminished by the addition of egg yolk and um, things that don't taste like corn. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's kind of the purity of flavor and the, uh, you know, yeah. sort of the honestness, the, uh, the, the not using, you know, I was real afraid at one point that I would rely on trickery. The, the more times I learned new tricks, I'd find them always showing up, you know, and uh, that carbonated grape, for years I didn't know what to do with it and, you know, did the white gazpacho and uh, I was like, oh, it's classically garnished with grapes. And I was like, here is finally a chance to use it where it makes sense and uh, aids the dish rather than sort of sticks out and is just a, a visual folly, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, so. Yeah, it carries the flavor. It does. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it, I, Graham Elliott Bowles at Avenues is a big, big fan of carbonation and whatever, a lot of the dishes. And he, uh, the thing I, I almost noticed about it is this idea that, you know, everybody talks about the five senses of taste, you know, it's stuff sweet, sour, umami, et cetera, et cetera. I almost feel like that carbonation sort of adds like a sixth sort of idea to the, I mean, I know it's distinctly not really one of the five. It could be any of them, but it's, it just, it, it does something with the flavor. It transforms flavors, you know, or elevates them or it's, and so, yeah, I agree. It's not just a trick. I'm, I'm the other thing too, I'm curious about what you call it or what you would think about it as. I mean, everybody always talks about molecular gastronomy. I'm kind of an anti that word now because if you think about it all gastronomy is molecular that's <laughs> the way I look at it I mean everything starts with molecules do you have any sense of you know I know Grant Ackett calls it postmodern cooking now I you know what is it doesn't matter I don't know I think it's I think it's incredibly important that people push the edge I think absolutely you know in every discipline you need the people that are standing on one edge of the bubble just so that the circle can grow and there's more room for all of a sudden the bubbles out here and what used to be the bubble is now where most of us live and, and stand and play and use all the things that were so avant before because those guys are now over here. So I, I think it's incredibly important. I don't necessarily want to, you know, get on that bandwagon. And for me lately, I had a new thought about what you would call it, or at least what I would call mine. It's like New Nouveau, you know, like when the original Nouveau happened, it was a reduction of fat. It was the Trois Gras Brothers. It was, you know, taking all the fat out making these very, very clear flavors, very, very clear broths, very, very clear, you know, without that old richness of cream and demi-gloss. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, as I make sauces and as I make, you know, new dishes, for me it's sort of in the new nouveau style. It's, uh, you know, very bright, you know, a bright red color on the plate. You know, if you look at the Trogrog, I, I refer back to them because they're kind of the first nouveau um, people. Um, you look at their plates and they're so filled with fresh color and so filled with, you know, freshness. It's almost like, and then it becomes market driven, you know, and then, then you really have this, what I like and what I love is that you have the best ingredients and the best technique. You know, fat for me is like, if you have flavors and they look like an oscilloscope, like the uh, the wave in a, like a like sine, sine wave, wave yeah. um, you know, I think flavors each have their own wave form. And uh, I think what fat does is the flavors stay in their wave form, but it smushes the screen down. So it's... It, they have they reach less peaks and less valleys, but it's still the same shape. It's just not as um, you know. Yeah, by using these stabilizers and or these additives, I mean, you get you actually get more pure flavor, right? Because Absolutely. Because you're not adding any taste and you're not adding a mouthfeel that doesn't you know it's the purity of whatever it is you're adding. If you add like Ultratex three to like a herb puree, it's just the herb puree with body. Absolutely, you know, and uh, all these chemicals. If people grew up saying baking soda was sodium bicarbonate, this whole switch would be easier for people, I think. You know, it's because we've given friendly names to the ones we already use that makes it seem so foreign now. Mm -hmm. um, so. I'm curious. I mean, Scott was that true for quite a bit. Now mm -hmm. you're kind of in the position to put your own stamp on the wine list a little bit. You mentioned this idea that auction prices are high. I know another thing that's going on, of course, is the, the strength of the euro. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the... I know champagne prices are already up 20 or 30 percent. Um, likely a lot of European varietals are going to follow suit this year from what I hear. Maybe that changes what you're going to do, but I, but I wonder what your philosophy is for the, the wine list for True and, and what you plan on you know, doing to make it better or different or whatever. Well, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's huge. So, I mean, um, although I feel like I've made many changes, it still looks quite the same. It's still burgundy driven. Um, uh, I think Things that I want to really make a, a stamp on is is featuring things like the Sommelier Collection, uh, things like that. Well, we're known for already having this cellar 
and, um, and utilizing some things that we have in quantity that we already have. Um, because I can't purchase some of these things that I'm buying uh, that, or that I'm using on this particular menu. I couldn't purchase them now. And if I did, they'd be much more exorbitant than the, the price that I got when, or Scott would have gotten when he, uh, when he did purchase them. Uh, as far as new things that I'm bringing in, there's still a lot of great wine out there that's, that's even within Spain, although it's certainly becoming more expensive, it's, it's still nothing compared to uh, um, some of the French prices. And even, I'd say, the uh, Tuscan and Piedmont prices that things are getting at. But there's other places that are making fantastic wines, the wines of Georgia, the wines of, um, uh, of Slovenia, the Croatia, as I mentioned before. Um, and then and I've had some Veliko Bianco. Absolutely, Veliko really Bianco from, uh, from Movia, which is a, uh, a fantastic, fantastic wine. Um, but then, I mean, there's great stuff coming from kind of... One of the beautiful things about about wine and, and sommelier, if you will, is that um, you never know at all. Even if you think you are know, if you know South Africa, I guarantee you there's somebody that's making something completely different right there. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's point, case in point. There's some beautiful stuff coming out of South Africa that's completely different, utilizing some some traditional methods and then bringing in some other great varieties that that weren't typically ever used there. Mm -hmm. and, um, and beautiful styles of wine. And in South America, South America's very very economical. So as far as making changes, it would be additions to things like that. Wines that from America that aren't just from um, uh, pretty much just the West Coast is what we're all geared towards. Great wines out of Canada uh, and Mexico as well. Baja California, Appalachian in Mexico is doing some fantastic stuff. So there's plenty of room to, to, to I guess, just using what you're saying, I think one of the most interesting ones on here is, this, like you mentioned earlier, the Barbersville. Mm -hmm. It's a Viognier from Virginia, of Absolutely. all places. How do you find something like that? Uh, well, we have a, there's a fantastic distributor here, this lady named Beverly Malin, who's uh, been a real champion of, uh, of wines from these areas, from, from, uh, from New York State, from Maryland, from Connecticut, from Arizona, uh, and then from Virginia. Um, the Barbersville property is very special. It was actually prospected by Thomas Jefferson and his then friend James Barber, who who was the first governor of Virginia. Um, Thomas Jefferson was the uh, ambassador to France under George Washington, fell in love with wine, was a huge Bordeaux fanatic, and enjoyed the wines of, uh, of uh, Piedmont as well. And he spent a lot of years of his life planting grapes all throughout this particular place in Virginia. Um, I don't know, I don't think it took too well, uh, but in, in the mid-70s, um, a member of the Zonin family, a, a, a Venetian or Veneto winemakers, bought the property and, uh, in the 1990, their current winemaker, uh, Luca Pasconi, came in and really started lowering yields, doing the kind of trellising that would work in this environment. It's a very moist environment. They had huge rot problems, and he cleaned that up. And, and now it's, I mean, obviously they don't have the, um, the selling power of it, but, I mean, the, the juice is good. They make a lot of Italian varietals. But this has a beautiful clarity of flavor, and, and we utilize that. We utilize that. It's, it's very distinct honeysuckle, coriander, white pepper, lemon. And uh, it has beautiful link to it, and, and it's certainly better than most uh, Viognier's that come out of California, and uh, gives even the ones of um, of Cadreau in France a run for their money. It's a hmm. Gorgeous texture to it. So how do you guys how do you guys work together on new dishes? Um, yeah, so not sommelier menu, not mm. you know the current menu. I mean, do you guys do you cook it for them, and uh, you know, how does you know do you do you guys do a lot of tasting of different wines? To, what, how does collaboration up to this point? This has definitely amplified and magnified our collaboration, and it's actually one, I think, reason in retrospect that we did it was to work together, and, you know, I think from henceforth, we will be a better working at working together and do more of that. But, yeah, Chad, you know, has seen me go up in the, uh, you know, the brigade, and uh, I've seen him, you know, on their brigade go up. And, uh, you know, so he's always, I've always been giving him, like, check this out, I just made this. You know, Chad's one of the people that I, I come to with as much youthful exuberance as he exhibits at the table and with a spoon. Like, you got to try this. You know, mm -hmm. it's not on a dish yet, but it's like, look what I did. You know, it's like, um, so he's, he's more of that um, right now as far as the development of the dishes go. More of a, an exciting sounding board, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, and I mean, as far as for me, you know, obviously... You know, I'll, he'll be telling me about a dish that he's doing, and then I just think of the structure of it, okay? Is it a prefix dish or is it a collection? If it's a collection, what course is it going to be? And then what is going to be around it? And obviously I want to keep a progression in mind of everything. Uh, I know what I have available right then, and uh, I have a fairly good idea of 
uh, obviously what I'm planning on pouring by the glass, but I want what is by the glass at True, and I think from the time of Scott Tyree has been dictated by the tasting menus, say for the champagnes, which are just kind of more of a categorical thing. And, luck and luckily, and, and usually, the food is complex enough that we can go a lot of different directions with it and have similarities and obviously looking at price points and things of that sort. I've had the chance to learn a lot about wine this last, through Chad. Chad's always bringing back killer wines that he opens for people for me to try, you know, mm -hmm. little, little glasses. And so my own knowledge about how food and wine and just about the world of wine over the last year has really, really grown. You know, I'm able to, being a manager, buy stuff from the cellar that, you know, he's kind of directed my focus. Um, you know, my my girlfriend is into the wine and she's also, she has the list, she helps direct what <laughs> be bringing home from True. Um, but yeah, my does. eyes have really been open the last year, year and a half to the whole, as a cook you can't afford to right. explore wine. You know, um, as a food writer you can't either. <laughs> I'll just so put that out it's, there. It's really been amazing, you know, what I've been able to take. You'll see my Trader Joe's selection <laughs> behind us. Looking good, man. Looking right. good. Do you, do you have any sense of the way, you know, what he's talking about, this new way of cooking, nouveau, new, nouveau, mm -hmm. as he says, um, does it offer any challenge to you as a sommelier that you would not have had before? Well, I mean, I, to be quite honest, I think that because of the complexity of it and the, the clarity of the flavor, I mean, it, if anything, it, I have always felt that with, with wine pairing, it's important that you have a reason for everything that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you can metaphorically find a reason for this complex food. So if anything, it's kind of opened the door even wider for me as far as wine and food pairing is concerned. Um, but, I mean, although I do believe that, that, that there's a lot of room for error, there is that idea of that one perfect wine, but it's not just one perfect wine for the dish. There's one perfect wine for the dish for that person on that day. And so by it's important for all of us as a service staff to be completely empathetic to that and employing that out of the guest and, and finding that for them that's going to highlight this occasion the best. Um, and yeah, I, although the Sommelier Collection might limit that, I think for those guests that, that do feel that, I mean, are going to be very much into it. I, I mean, that's interesting. I, that reminds me of something I've I've heard about cooking too, which is that you know there are some chefs who cook technically very well and they put great stuff on the plate, and then there's those chefs who you know for lack of be or maybe being a little cheesy, it's this idea of you know putting love on the plate. Or but what it really is is like you're somehow able to gauge what a customer needs. You know, how do you do that? How do you do that as a cook? How do you do that as a sommelier? Because you, you talk about this, what, mm -hmm. that wine for that person. Yeah. Like, how does that, what is that? Well, you listen. <laughs> that's, that's the biggest thing. I mean, it's easier for me because I can, I can listen to the, uh, the guests and, tr and try to. It, it's very hard on a, on a busy night to, to listen when you, and to pull that out of them and to open something really that's going to, to, whether it's something by the glass for them or, or quite often with a wine that's like ours, they're going to be getting a bottle of something. Um, like, it's, what if somebody got into a car accident before they came that, that yeah. night. Would you give them, what, like, a shot of Jaeger? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, it, it's something tragically, and we have had tragic stuff happen um, to people on, the, on their way there. We, we want them to, to be as calm and serene as possible. And uh, um, by giving, I had a, we had a guest the other day, a young couple, it was an anniversary, and they were looking at the wine list and they were just kind of looking at it and they got to the very back and they saw the sweet wines and we happened to have Chateau Ikem in 1986 by the glass for $120 a glass. And I, heard, I overheard her as I was walking by. And then when I went, finally went to the table to discuss with them that um, uh, they were getting wine by the glass and, and they were just going to each have one glass. Obviously it was they were newlyweds, and, and this was a very special thing for them. And they were—they knew they were going to drop some change, but and they had mentioned to me the 120. And I said, "Oh, that's fantastic!" And, and I kind of just glazed over it, knowing that uh, at the very end of their meal, I was going to give each of them a taste of it, and uh, which—and it was just a, a taste, so half a glass. Um, so $60 that I split between the two of them and, uh, and gave them the beautiful story that is Chateau and Kim of this constant selection of 80-year-old men that have been doing it since they were in their 20s of this selection process, sometimes 30 times. And by doing that, and I mean, the lady teared up. I mean, it was... What a great moment, yeah. A absolutely. And... Uh, and she's going to tell everybody now the jig that. is up there everybody's going to come to yeah exactly like that like that 45 mouton yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's a little expensive <laughs> oh isn't it though <laughs> yeah. but you'd be surprised I mean um, by, by 
by walking somebody through our, our, our lounge area and talking a little bit about the Andy Warhol or the Vic Munez or, um, or, or, or some of the art pieces that we have and by giving them that, by telling them this, uh, a little story about this, um, uh, the, Donald, the, the art pieces or walking them through the kitchen or Tim taking them over and showing them the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, salt aging of the cod and talking to them about this process, if he can get a step away for a moment. Uh, any of these things just highlight that experience and most of them don't cost us anything, just a little bit of time and yet make that beautiful experience for them. Having that coat ready for them, that car warmed up, um, all things that, that I think a, a few restaurants strive to do and uh, um, that make that experience and beautiful for them every time. Maybe pick two, why, um, what your Desert Island wines would be. <laughs> You first, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I would have to say uh, definitely uh, Claude de Sancerre, uh, Jolie. How am uh, I saying Coulis this? Coulis de Sarant. Uh, Coulis de Sarant, uh, by uh, Nicolas Jolie, for sure, would be on there. Um, Why do you like that one? Just the taste? Or uh, yeah, the it was experience? kind of the first time I had my head blown off by wine. It was... Uh, the girlfriend had something to do. Yeah, it was at Webster Wine Bar with her and... Uh, with a bunch of two other of her wine friends, and uh, I was still pretty much brand new into the whole thing. Had never been to Webster Wine Bar, and uh, they ordered this white wine that needed to be decanted into this, uh, and it was a uh, Sauvignon by Jolie, uh, kind of a little old, I think '97 or. Um, it was amazing, just the way it smelled. They all bailed out um, of it with a third of the decanter left to go to this big red wine, and I just couldn't f understand how they were already done with it, you know? Um, so that one, for sure, and I've actually had the chance Chad's shared with me some of the other Jolie products, and I just, I, I love every, it's right up my style. Um, mm -hmm. Other than that, you know, as far as names go, I'm not so good at that. I would I would have to say some, something with a lot of barnyard and a lot of poo on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like it stinks. Yeah, a lot of Britannomyces. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot. Anything that with a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, Not really. So, a lot of people who listen will understand that one better. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now with my yeah. appreciation. All the things that are huge, that don't taste like wine, that taste yeah. like olives. He really olives. likes those Provençal wines, uh, Domaine de Trevion, Mastamasca Sac, things uh, like that that I'll turn them on to. And then try to you know shade him way over to Spain. Stop depleting my inventory on all the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, they, um, for me, the desert island. Um, before I started it, true, um, I was really. I mean, like most people, I was really way into red wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, true, with their amazing Burgundy collection, has showed me what. First of all, what Chardonnay and then also what white wine can do with age. Um, I've been fortunate enough to open some Grand Cru Burgundies, Petard Monarchés, and Le Monarchés from uh, that have nice amount of age on them. Um, so if I could get a hand on a hand on that, and the good thing I'll be on the desert island is like most white Burgundies, you don't have to have it well chilled. But something like the Domaine de Fleb, Petard Monarchés something old, something 19, 1985. Yeah. Um, and then also, I mean, uh, Riesling. Um, of course. Riesling, <laughs> Riesling. Ni it's like the Somalia's French. 1971. I, but 1971 German, I, I, uh, or even um, Alsatian, just the amount of complexity you can get at it. Um, what, do, what do you guys do when you're not doing food? I don't know if that's a bad question, because it's like, what? Because <laughs> I know somebody once asked me that, and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, That's a tough one, you know. Um, trying to have a relationship. Yeah, I that's mean, the biggest that, thing. that's yeah, have a life. You know, that's not uh, all food. I I do uh, buy a lot of records. Yeah. Um, what do you like to listen to? Soul, funk, disco. Nice. Um, pretty much anything between '66 and '78. You know. Um, what would you cook to at home? What I, usually it's NPR, um, <laughs> but but I would say you know mm -hmm. then if if it's on the radio and I'm cooking, it's more like White Stripes or uh, you know something a little more. Up, because the records. There's no way you can cook and play records. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you need a CD. You know, it's, um, and uh, so other than that, there's really not a lot of time left. I, I cook at home sometimes. You know, yeah, it's um, kind of like a busman's holiday. Um, <laughs> like to go out and eat. Yeah. Really like to go out and uh, drink wine. What have you been really impressed by locally eating out? Lula Cafe consistently blows me away. I, I go there for dinner and the left side of the menu shows up and I, I pretty much just get the left side of the menu. Um, 
You know they're opening up a place down yeah. here in Wilson. Yeah, okay. yeah twenty first and it's gonna be awesome. Um Halstead. They're kinda of my favorites to go to right now. Uh Lalan I think is, is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um there's so many exciting places there in are. Chicago. There you are. know, it's just uh even the little taqueria I get excited by the you know. Yeah. So maybe I more so because it's such a discovery, you know. It's oh, like I everybody don't. writes about Lula now, but it's Absolutely. like you find like a nice carne asada like on the side, you know. You're like, oh, I'm not gonna tell anybody. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> totally. <laughs> How about you? Um, as far as um, what I do, I mean, I uh, I have a miniature dachshund that runs my life, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, you know, you just try to have a relationship, you know, try to spend this, uh, the full Sunday off we have together being together. And um, and it's, you know, it's, although my mother-in-law believed that the conflicting schedules of my wife's nine-to-five job and my evening job would make for a perfect marriage, it, yeah. you certainly have to be in the moment when you have the moments together. Yeah. And um, so doing that as much as possible. Um, you got to work on the wardrobe too, right? Yeah, yeah you, you do, it. you do. I, I think she helps a little. And uh, well, I am colorblind, yeah. so I have, <laughs> yeah, I have lots of help. And, uh, the uh, the other sommelier there is well versed in my shirt and tie combinations. And uh, yeah. um, uh, but then as, as far as places around, I definitely concur with the Lula Cafe and uh, enjoying that quite a bit. Um, I don't I don't get to eat out as much as possible, mm-hmm. but I guess opposite for me is I do try to cook at home. I, I find that kind of with that. Uh, Although I might not have the years of technique, I try to I try to do the most difficult recipe possible, the most sure. time-consuming, dirtiest as many pans, hard, and then I'll come and tell Tim about how difficult it was. Man, he'll tell me before too. Like he'll bring the you know. Oh, dude, I'm gonna do this. Charlie Palmer, he got a book like, <laughs> cooking at it for quite some time. You know, and they're not like your average housewife recipes. Sure. You know, they're like. Although I am a gorgeous housewife. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna make this. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's like the yeah. French Laundry cookbook, which I got back here. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, it's porn. Maybe books. once a year I'll oh, cook yeah. out of it. You know, it's like, or I'll read it for reference, and then I'll be like, yeah, I'm not gonna strain the sauce seven times. <laughs> like, <laughs> once is good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, his his Bouchon books a lot a lot easier to cook. I did the 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 uh, oh. roasted chicken recipe last night. Out of oh, there. nice! Just basically just burn it. Just <laughs> just yeah. lots of salt and 450 and, uh, <laughs> and smoke alarm. Just take it out. And <laughs> so I, I see the advanced Smalley pen you have. Yeah. Are you going for the the big gun? Yeah, the master uh, taken it 2009. So they just actually had the test this past week. Fernando Batata went on Sunday. I haven't haven't heard from him, and I'm not calling him till he. Calls I know that's me. his third one, right? It's, so it's this, this is the. This is the uh, but he will he will he has definitely been one of our biggest mentors. Uh, he has been always helpful to taste, always helpful with theory questions. Uh, before a group of us took the advance this last year, he organized with Serafina uh, 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 Alvarado the um, uh, a little mock service thing. I mean, all those things are so helpful. He's so giving with his time. A lot of people ask, what is exactly a master sommelier? And that's what it is. It's a, it's a, an educator, um, and, and he is he's fantastic. And, um, and he's young, and he's—I know—he certainly, obviously, wants to pass, but uh, it will not discourage him and keep him from from continuing to yeah. learn. And, uh, it's a nice accolade, but at the mm-hmm. end of the day, how you taste and how you pay attention, mm-hmm. your acumen is more important than anything. I think. Yeah, and then every master somebody would agree with that. And mm-hmm. uh, um, it's, yeah, it's a nice accolade, and it's going to certainly open doors for you. Um, and uh, you can't um, let six wines. Yeah. dictate your lifetime yeah. you know who knows what you know oh it's so hard well the biodynamic people would believe that it, were you tasting on a tasting day right, and, right. Uh, was, the, was the moon passing through the appropriate uh, house and, uh, that's right some semiotics involved yeah, in certainly, the certainly get your cosmic rhythm right buddy. <laughs> and, uh, what about spirits Oh, you, uh. do you, do you have a sense of what that does with food? Of course, <laughs> yeah. There, there's the sort of uh, you know Charlie Trotter has said it dulls your palate. Though I've heard the reason he says that is he's like a hundred yards from a church and he can't serve spirits. I don't know if that's that true. Is, that is true. He can't. And uh, so you know whatever. So it's, maybe that's just something he's been perpetuating for a long time to save face. Um, but do you? I mean, do you do you like to do some spirit pairings? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know I've seen you guys have been doing some really good stuff in the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. but especially going more towards that crate culinary mixology or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. Well, Chad laughs there originally because I am a huge fan of scotch <laughs> and uh, have tried several times to force these pairings, and uh, I also really love pork belly. 
And so I was, you know, working on a dish in my head, and I was like, Chad, we got to try this with scotch, man. I, this is just going to be killer. You know, it's going it's to rock. It was, it was horrible. It was so it was, all the fat trapped all the alcohol inside your nose. It was just a... Mm-hmm. Well, you should, you, you need to cook like a wheatgrass dish, right? Or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, like can, sauteed can you, peat. Yeah, like, can you poach a Band-Aid actually? Can you do that? And, uh... Um, I'm all about it. We've the, been working on vermouths. We've got a sassafras vermouth that's been sitting for almost mm-hmm. six months now. We've got a Thai basil vermouth that's almost a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been, uh, we, a little while ago, we moved the bar into the kitchen. It's actually, it's a service bar in the kitchen. And that has, I mean, I think without, we have not put much fanfare to it, but I think our cocktails are pretty, pretty right on. And the guests that have come and had them have been great. I mean, this fantastic cocktail stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You look at everything from the Violet Hour to what uh, uh, Seppi is doing and places like that. I think there's great, great cocktails out Adam there. Adam National. Ad- certainly. Yeah, Adam, Adam, Adam Seeger and uh, fantastic stuff of, 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 of bitter usage and all that. So I really feel like I can't, I can't hang with those guys or we can't hang with those guys, but I feel that there certainly is an element to it as far as we want True to be elegance mm-hmm. you know it's not going to be budget um but it is we do want it to be an elegant place so by putting out elegant cocktails and uh, and utilizing spirits in an elegant way obviously the problem is is if they're having nine wines and you throw a you throw a shot of rum at the end it's how uh, you want to you want don't want to be concerned for their safety right. um right. but i think what we do want to experiment with is is aromatically driving these things, using a, a wash of scotch on something, uh, or or utilizing the aromatic thing of it um, by uh, approaching that. And certainly, if you pour scotch at a table, everybody at the table can smell it. So by utilizing that in some form and uh, making it part of that, using it with amenities, uh, we're fortunate that we do have a lot of excellent um, um, spirits, cognacs, and scotches and the like. Well, when you send them home with the Mignardis, you can slip mm-hmm. in a CTA card, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, yeah, I mean, we're certainly we're certainly all about it, uh, making our own infusions, um, using like that. We're <laughs> I just remembered, actually, we got in the cooler right now some caramelized onion vodka that I'm sure is oh, ready yeah. to go. We got I forgot. That we're straight that off. Uh, a French onion soup martini. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Yeah, we gotta warm it. We don't you know, really and I have, a, I have a steam distiller that distills aromatics. It's for the perfume industry. Um, and when we first got it, we haven't actually, like you refers to the washes, um, is kind of that idea of aromatizing these things. Very similar to the bitters, like Violet Hour will uh, drop six of them over something, mm-hmm. you know, and they smell awesome. We haven't really. Uh, we're still uh, new together. There's several idea starting points that we've yet to start on the track of, but we've definitely gotten a few. A few starting blocks to uh to yeah i mean it sounds exciting it sounds mm-hmm. like you guys will be a place to watch over the next few years you know cool so i look forward to it thanks for doing this guys thank, thank you. you appreciate it i hope you enjoyed the interview thanks for listening if you have any feedback please send it to mj n-a-g-r-a-n at hungrymag.com we'll see you soon and in the meantime stay hungry